Fleet Street was a village. Everybody knew everybody else. Fleet Street was a, a buzzing kind of place, you know, you can imagine, as 100,000 people work, 24 hours a day, really. If you can imagine a city within a city, that was Fleet Street. Welcome to the Digital Works Oral History Podcast. This series is called Fleet Street Remembered, an oral history of London's print workers. London primary school children interviewed print workers to document what life was like for printers, finishers, journalists and readers in the heyday of newspaper production in Fleet Street. This is episode three and explores life on Fleet Street and the importance of the union to workers and working practices in the print. Most of the actual printing was done in the side streets and alleys, north and south of the street. Inside these great cathedral-like structures, every night there was a miracle. The miracle of newspaper production. A process so complex and so grandiose in conception as to retain a touch of romance no matter what the news itself might happen to be. But, you know, Fleet Street was so busy, it, it was a, a world of its own. So you could come into Fleet Street and you could go into a pub 24 hours a day. There was always a pub open. At one time, when I was young, the print was the biggest single employer in London. You know, like something like 5% of people worked in the print and that was the biggest single employer. So a lot of people worked in Fleet Street. It was a big, big work area. There was over 100,000 people worked in Fleet Street. So Fleet Street was a, a buzzing kind of place. You know, you can imagine there's 100,000 people work 24 hours a day, really. Fleet Street was a village. Everybody knew everybody else. It was exciting. There was a real buzz every night was party night. That's why people tolerated the conditions, because of the comradeship and the fun. It made for very, very tight working relationships. I mean, they're all factories. Print, it's just a factory, a printing factory, you know. Some factories make baked beans, some print. There was the, uh, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Express, all had beautiful offices and a facade of uh, real places to be proud of. But uh, behind that, they were just like factories, huge printing machines inside that were so noisy, you would have to have cotton wool in your ears. And the, the people that ran them, they, they used to make hats out of newspapers, fold them up so otherwise their hair would get all ink in them. So you could all see them in their overalls and their big white hats on. But you couldn't talk, you couldn't hear your voice if you were standing next to them. They made so much noise. If you can imagine a city within a city, that was Fleet Street. There were public houses and restaurants and things like that that were constantly full. They could hear reporters, the journalists, actually arguing in a public house about why did you put that in your paper? 
it's a load of rubbish and then the other one and it was quite enlightening you, know, you had that you had you it, it was the crossroads of the world oh it was chaos lots and lots of drinking it's always said about Fleet Street um, the incident that I'm reminded of best was when um, women's equality was coming was coming through more and bars weren't allowed to have discrimination against women and um, there was a legendary bar on Fleet Street called Elvino's and after this legislation had gone through at five o'clock one afternoon um, was the first session in Elvino's where women were going to be able to walk up to the bar and order a drink. This must have been about 1982 or something. And various photographers were all standing outside the Fleet Street branch of Elvino's catching the queue. And there were lots and lots of women all determined to get in and become the first woman to order a drink at the Elvino's bar. When the pictures were coming in, they were all rushed straight up to... Um, the sun, and they're right at the front of the queue in these pictures with our chief sub-editor who had grey hair standing there at five o'clock waiting to get into Elvino's for his regular gin and tonic in the middle of the afternoon. Loads and loads of people really working ever so hard but also enjoying themselves as well and lots of chattering and nattering and meeting up and what have you. Sometimes it was very hard but it was a, I loved it. Absolutely, we all did. It was a lovely atmosphere. And the van drivers would always be playing cards, always cards like that. And there'd be a pile of £10 notes like that. And I was on to think about, I think it was about £15 a week. And there'd be a pile, I used to think, oh, look. <laughs> and some people go, like, oh, I've lost. And they go, scoop, and all the money's gone. And then they'd be bombing around on the vans delivering evening newses. So, <laughs> different world though, wasn't it? We'd have our dinner break, so what we do, we'd get in somebody's car and we might drive to the Daily Mirror building. You walk into the Daily Mirror building and have your tea in their canteen. The next day you might go to the Daily Telegraph building and have dinner in their canteen. Everything was so open and everything was free and easy. It's a great big community, so what happened in the Times or the Sun was immediately felt in the other companies as well because everybody knew each other. Plus, people might do two, do two shifts in one newspaper and then two shifts in another newspaper. So everybody was interlinked. But it was a lovely atmosphere. It was, and it changed with the day as well. As, as um, uh, evening came, you'd have all these sort of uh, guys driving the cars up because you could park at night then, driving the cars up because they were going to work the presses that night. During the day, you had the vans all bombing around. Um, it was wonderful, wonderful atmosphere, bustle and lovely. Well, I was brought up a, by a union father who was in the Transport and General Workers Union and worked at the docks just over the road at London Bridge. And he said, wherever you go, you've got to join the union. So that, that was easy for me. One of my comrades got hold of a pencil and snapped it. He said, easy, isn't it? I went, yeah. He then got hold of 10 pencils and he said, you break that. 
And that's when I started to understand about trade unionism and about how if people stand together against something that's wrong and they all stand together, they can do quite a lot. In our working life, we did depend upon one another very, very much. So the solidarity of the girls, the women that I work with, the union, which I think was a wonderful thing. We had convalescent homes, you know, and, and, and I'm talking just before the National Health came in and there were convalescent homes. My union itself had five convalescent homes. We had sick pay schemes before we got really proper sick pay and that type of thing, that the union was there for the members. There was a sign from the cradle to the grave, the union will look after you. Everyone joined the union in those days. It was what they called a closed shop. So everyone had to join the union. So I was happy. I didn't know much about unions um, until I joined it. But then I was very happy because the union looked after us. 16, we were allowed to go to a union meeting. Although we weren't members, we were members of the chapel, which they call your branch, they call it your chapel. And the union man is the father of the chapel and he has a committee. And the committee sort of all work together and advise. They discuss things and decide which way they're, they're going to operate. Well, directly you were, I think it was 18, uh, you became a union member. You couldn't, you couldn't join before. I'm sure it was 18. Um, and you were given a a book, the history of the, the union you were joining. You were given your union card, which had um, a letter I on the back to show you an apprentice. Um, and you had your union number. My union number was 9999. Uh, so I could always remember that. But because from day one, everything was union, you just slotted into it. Uh, whether it be someone walking around with um, a list saying, do you want to work tonight, do some overtime tonight? That was run by the union. Collecting subscriptions was run by the union. And if you had a problem, you went to your union representative. You didn't automatically go to your manager. You went to your union representative uh, and told him about any problems you had and they would make arrangements for you. You, you didn't approach management um, uh, without going to your union first. The union in printing was a massive part of your trade. Was mostly the union was the trade union that we belonged to was very um, important in people's lives. Um, it, it, not only in the sense that negotiated wages and uh, um, conditions, but also we organised the rotors. Yeah? So if a, a chapel, a big, a chapel um, is uh, a print expression for the local branch, where, where you worked. So if you worked in Her Majesty's Station Office, that's a chapel. If you worked in a Daily Express, that's a chapel. No one really knows where this came from, why they're called chapels. Some people say it's because of non-conformist churches, which are called chapels. And early printers used to meet in the non-conformist church. No one really knows, but anyway, it's called chapel, so that is a tradition. And you used to have to work out uh, um, the rotors. Now, some chapels are 600 people. Working out a rotor for 600 people is complicated. So we used to do that. It was not a management prerogative. We 
done that. So that, there was a lot of tradition with the union, what you did, and felt allegiance and loyalty to the union. And the union used to have a facility where you could go up to the union house, which was like a big office, tell them your name and address and what you did and what you could do, and they had a great big long list there of opportunities. And the union used to send you for, for job interviews. I got very, very involved in the union. It was a woman's branch, part of uh, the paper workers' union, but a branch of women, run by women, very, very unusual. And we had 25,000, 26,000 members at our peak. My early involvement in the union, I was perhaps, I suppose, 16. Within the company where I worked at Westminster, we was given a rise one year and the men got for no reason other than they were men, the men got X amount and the women got X amount, but it was a lot less than what the men got. And I, probably as a 16, 17 year old, thought, no, that can't be right. We had no laws on our side uh, and we just had nothing. Um, we had no legislation and all we could do was um, go through our union, who, who I must say, sometimes <laughs> paid a little bit of lip service to it as well. So, I mean, they, um, they wasn't very uh, supportive, not all of them, but um, some of them weren't very supportive either. So um, we, ne we only never had the management to sort out. We, we had problems within our own union as well. It wasn't easy for women. It was very, very hard to get recognition that you your work was every bit as equal to the work that any man did. And you were getting a lower rate of pay than the man sweeping the floor. And it wasn't right. And, and that's what happened to the Dagenham women. They were getting far less of a rate of pay. But those women stood up and it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for those Dagenham women. And the men weren't happy about it and they made it nasty for them. But in the end, it came true, it came good. And on the 21st of June 1972, all the reps of the union was called into an office of the managing director who said that he was closing the company from that minute onwards. And there was a big union meeting called. And from that day, we occupied the factory because that was a factory whose order books was full it was a custom-built factory within the old Kemp Road. Had loads of work, and the people that actually took that over was asset stripping. Now that means that they just wanted the building and the machinery to sell off. That was worth more to them than a big order book, and indeed all all the workforce being put out of work. So we took that factory over, and we conducted a working for a year. Thank you for listening to episode 3 of Fleet Street Remembered. The interviews were collected by children from St Matthews and St George the Martyr Primary Schools 
as part of a project supported by St Bride Institute and the News International Dispute Archive. Archive audio courtesy of Andy Humphreys. In episode 4 we explore the warping dispute and life on the picket line. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and produced by Digital Works. To find out more about our oral history projects, films and podcasts, visit www.digital-works.co.uk where you can also view Banging Out, Fleet Street Remembered, the documentary film made as part of this project.